Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. I am so grateful for you taking the one non-renewable resource you've got. That, of course, is your time and investing it into your learning, your growth here with us on Suncast. I am so pleased and I want to share with you today a company that if you're in the large scale project development space, especially for solar and battery storage, they probably need no introduction. But KeyBank Capital Markets is one of the largest advisories in the solar business. We're going to kick things off with a couple of folks from their storage practice, which has been quite busy. KeyBank Capital Markets has advised on over 10 billion in battery storage and solar deals. They're the largest debt provider to solar projects in the United States. But you know, I do a lot of introduction in the episode itself as it was produced live from the Power Up Live stage in Las Vegas a few weeks ago. I want to thank KeyBank Capital Markets for being our presenting sponsor. I learned so much from the fine folks who presented in these two sessions that you're going to listen to today. We start with everything storage. What do you need to know about the challenges facing the battery storage industry, including tightened credit markets and increased costs due to baseline regulations? We get into how the IRA both provides tailwind and headwinds and project development is dealing with delays, as you are well aware. How that affects, though, capital investment might be something you want to stick around for. There is a lot to learn, and the KeyBank folks get into specifics about the kinds of developers that will succeed in the months and years to come. We follow that with a panel of four KeyBank Capital Markets experts who dig deep on mergers and acquisitions, specifically what does the M&A market for solar and storage look like? How are folks looking at M&A over the next 10 years? And is there broad support in the sector for M&A activity? There's hundreds of billions of dollars pouring in, but the industry still is a paltry 3% of our overall energy mix. Is renewable energy reaching maturity? And how will M&A play a part? All of that and more is discussed over the next hour. I encourage you to dig deep in this episode. If you don't have the time, bookmark it and come back to it. There are, in fact, two segments, so you can split it up 20 or so minutes each. And of course, if this kind of content is what you are looking for and you're new here, well, you have found the show, my friend, to give you insights on what's happening with the leading companies on the cutting edge of the clean energy transition. We break it up into two segments, our Tactical Tuesdays, which are tactical and practical advice on how to build your business and career. And then these longer form episodes that are typically executive profiles on Thursdays. 
This one happens to be a handful of executives from our friends at KeyBank Capital Markets. But each and every Thursday, we regale you with the insights from the fine folks who are building and leading the companies that are building the next generation of our energy matrix. You can find all our back catalog of nearly 650 episodes, along with all the research, goodies, links, and more at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. If you have been wondering, what's happening in storage? Well, the title says it all today. We're going to talk about everything storage with some folks that have done a few storage projects. If you're unfamiliar with KeyBank Capital Markets, well, today we're going to dive deep into all the things you need to know and some of the things that you didn't know you needed to know, but they're going to help you develop your projects, maybe even get them sold. So I want to introduce our guests. We have Aaron Klein, KeyBank Capital Markets Managing Director of Utilities, Power and Renewable. Good to see you, Aaron. Good to see you, Nico. Yeah, it's good to see you in person. We prep for all of this and then finally get to meet each other and everybody realizes how short I am. <laughs> <laughs> the stool is an equalizer in the, on the stage here. Beside Aaron, we've got Julian Baliet. Julian is the Managing Director of Utility, Power and, and Renewable Energy as well. And you all are both in the, uh, you're, you're running the storage division, right? You're the, you're the storage experts. Rather, storage experts. Storage experts, definitely. It's one of, the, uh, one of the areas where we focus our time. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the combined experience in the market that KeyBank Capital Markets brings from, from the perspective of storage. I think a lot of folks are familiar with the fact that you guys have brought the most debt to projects in the United States, but they may not be familiar with the advisory side and especially how you, how you guys are working in storage. That's right, Nico. So we've been... Um... And Aaron, in particular, within KeyBank, has been instrumental in the foray into battery storage finance. So KeyBank is among the leaders in battery storage finance and has been for, for a couple of years now. Uh, Aaron can, can talk about some of the metrics there, but we've been increasingly busy over the years uh, with uh, M&A and advisory services, providing M&A and advisory services to developers, IPPs, investors that are active in, in battery storage. So it goes back to, I think, uh, 2017 was when we did our first capital raise for a battery storage company, and um, and so we've we've uh, played a, I think a, a pretty seminal role in not just the financing of battery storage, but also providing M and A services to to the sector, which uh, are enabling a lot of growth. Julian, are you all focused on projects specifically, or are you also working on capital raise and and institutional finance, that kind of thing? All of the above. All of the above. All of the above. Yeah. So we have um, clients that are pursuing. Platform transactions, mm. so there, that could be both a capital raise or a sale of the entire platform. Uh, we're also working with clients who are, are very active in selling uh, battery storage assets. So in both standalone storage and solar plus storage. Did, did I hear the total value? I, I feel like we talk a lot about the total debt that you guys have provided, but what's the, the aggregate, if you, if you have it, tip of, tip of tongue that you guys have done in deals? Yeah, so since the beginning of 2020, our team has closed 24 financings across either standalone storage or PV mm -hmm. plus storage. We've put about two and a half billion dollars off our own balance sheet to work. Wow. Uh, construction, permanent, bridges, some creative financings, but all across that space. That's amazing. KeyBank is building bridges. You heard it here. So speaking of building bridges and infrastructure, everyone last year was talking about IRA. IRA is the hot topic, so to speak, in terms of where funding is coming from. How specifically did the IRA help the storage market? 
Yeah, it, it helped on on two fronts. One is, and the most obvious one is, it extended the uh, the ITC to standalone battery storage projects. And the second thing that it did is it extended a, a production tax credit to domestic manufacturing of, of battery cells mm-hmm. and modules. So um, the two of those things combined really add a lot of gasoline uh, to an already uh, growing growing fire uh, in in the space. So those two subsidies are. Uh, going to are driving uh, the massive proliferation of stores across several markets. Uh, the extension of the ITC to battery storage facilities obviously creates uh, a lot of um, uh, economic economic opportunities for developers for investors. It increases developer fees. It drives uh, increased returns for for investors, and so that's sending positive signals to developers to go out and develop uh, more storage. And so that these developers can also pass through some of the upside uh, to ultimately to to their customers through uh, the provision of, of the, the grid services that battery storage provides at, at a right. lower cost. And then with the production tax credits, you know, at some point we're going to have more domestic manufacturing of battery cells. That in turn is going to unlock not just 30% ITC for battery storage projects, but 40%. So it's a, it's a positive, virtuous cycle. You know, I've been watching the storage market develop and it's, it's easy to say it's never been as lucrative as it is right now. We finally have the unlock. And to quote Andy on your team, Andy Redinger from last year, we really are throwing gasoline on a bonfire in this case. Right. So we've talked about, obviously, the IRA is a huge tailwind, which we know is lifting and pushing the market forward. But what about the headwinds? What, what do we have to look for and that's, that's keeping progress from moving forward? Supply chain comes to mind right off the top. Okay. Cost of equipment. It's really tough to get. It's pushing everything back. Every project is getting, it's just slipping. Whether it's the construction, getting the equipment in. It, it, it's really delaying things. Yeah, and it's critical for you all because you're, poli- you're providing the capital. Are, are we looking at two months, six months? Can you put a little bit of a time period on it? And also, I'm curious, as the, as the capital provider or even you know, depending on how you guys are functioning there, how do you think about sequencing the cadence of when you are interacting in the project and how it impacts that? So that's definitely a focus of ours, especially as we look to raise development capital for some of these developers. And you think about when you can transition to your next investor. And you need to line up the timing there and sync up with when you make your equipment orders, make your deposits, your down payments, so that you don't lose any time on those projects as you transfer ownership or bring in an investor. One of the things that we talked about in our first conversation is that people don't want to admit that the cost of capital has gone up. How do you engage at that level with your customers? Like, what is that? I imagine that's also a headwind. Cost and availability. And availability. Of capital. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... Now the credit markets have tightened up. Uh, there's no escaping the fact that you know, base rates are up 400 bips over the last uh, year or so. Uh, so everything is just more expensive right now. It is is becoming increasingly more difficult for for battery storage developers to get access to, to the capital markets uh, for projects that are ready for construction. So we're seeing a, a slowdown in tax in the availability right. of tax equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the some of the traditional tax equity investors have been pulling back uh, from the market. Uh, there's also out of Basel, Basel three, we're seeing uh, suggestions that banks are going to have to tax equity investors are gonna have to reserve capital against yeah. tax equity commitments, right? Uh, which is going to obviously drive up the cost yeah. of tax equity. So, so that's one of the other uh, headwinds that we're seeing in the space, as well as, of course, interconnection timelines. Yeah. So, and that's not unique to storage. Of course, that impacts all technologies, but it's just certainly taking a lot longer to get projects, you know, online uh, in in markets like like PJM. And MISO, et cetera. Base rates tripling is, uh, is going to slow down any market from a capital allocation perspective, for sure. But nevertheless, projects are getting moved forward. 
I think what would be interesting, given how uh, how many deals you see on the table uh, as one of the largest providers of advisory, I'm curious what storage technologies are you actually seeing get financed? A lot of people talk about different kinds of technology, short duration, long duration. First, what's getting finance? And then where do you see it going? What's on the horizon? So, you know, obviously I'd, I would say lithium is, is the most uh, pronounced in the market today, right? Standard one, two, four hour systems. We're starting to see other technologies emerge, whether it's, you know, some type of an iron or other type of, you know, composite materials. To date, all we've really seen is equity finance that market. Uh-huh. As we look at long duration, we've started to see a little bit of traction in things like compressed air storage. Oh, yeah. You know, not only just domestically, but abroad. So it'll be interesting to see as those technologies come into play. Mm. But part of it, as those technologies come out, is also, you know, how do they utilize the battery from a commercial standpoint? And are there going to be offtake structures or solutions in place for them? So you need all the parties to come together at once to, to really make that work over time. It makes me wonder... In terms of the type of, of technology, where you're seeing developers emerge, right? Because you say compressed air, there aren't a lot of re- like traditional renewables companies coming out of uh, coming at the compressed air market, right? And when we look at folks that are traditionally molecule based, we do see a lot of hub, uh, you know, hubbub around hydrogen, compressed air. There's a lot of uh, kind of esoteric products, if you will, but they fit really well with existing infrastructure, just not existing, you know, solar or wind or, or hydro infrastructure. How do you guys see the developer uh, landscape evolving in that regard? Well, it's definitely broadening, right? As, as we see this transition continue to, to evolve and develop, we're seeing people come in from other industries with different backgrounds that maybe have a better risk appetite or a better, you know, history and background and experience to go after some of those other areas like a hydrogen, yeah. right? It seems like as well, I mean, Frankly, a lot of folks coming at it from uh, other energy sectors are more well capitalized as an entity. Does that impact kind of where the dollars tend to go? I'm just curious from a developer perspective, right? There's a lot of developers out there who five years ago, seven years ago, they might not have been competing against uh, one of the big uh, oil and gas companies. Yeah, I mean, listen, having a big balance sheet is a huge competitive advantage, right? You can always just write a check. You don't have to wait on financing. Right. Uh, allows you to do things like put large MSAs in place to procure equipment, right. get you the right attention. And in, in this market, scale matters. Yeah. So we, we do see a differentiation there. Ability to access capital when you need it, whether that be tax equity or other forms as well, yeah. it comes into play. It, well, it certainly provides a lot of flexibility in the financing front because we do see that the bigger balance sheet players are able to actually go ahead and start construction on balance sheet and they'll solve for debt and tax equity during construction, yeah. which smaller players cannot cannot do. Right. You know, we've talked a bit about the sort of that there are different stacks of capital available and there are different markets and stages and life cycles of the project. Can you talk a bit at a higher level about the types of capital that are available to storage developers and the projects that, are, that they're working on? Sure. So the, the most obvious one is at the kind of the NTP and, and, constr- and COD uh, stage, and that's your standard construction financing and, and term financing package, which KeyBank has been doing a fair bit of and leading the charge on. As you get early into the development cycle, from early stage all the way up to, to pre-NTP, uh, developers are getting a lot more creative uh, in in how they raise capital. Mm. And there's been a lot of creativity and evolution uh, on the capital market side of the house, where we're seeing a proliferation of, of uh, investors move earlier into the development cycle through the provision of develop, development capital. So we've our practice on the M&A and advisory side has historically been around M&A, selling, selling assets, selling NTP assets, COD assets, raising capital for platforms. Two years ago, I would say if we had a, a client who was looking for development capital, uh, there were maybe four to five names 
uh, go-tos that, that we would that we would suggest approaching. Today, that number is probably more like 15 to 25. So there's been an avalanche of capital industry, generally speaking, but but certainly one of the areas where folks are able to get to get higher returns is, is playing in the development capital space. With regards to how storage projects are being developed, there are different players in different markets, depending on even state level or an ISO, how you want to play. And it ultimately comes down to the reality that we can't get to you know, 50, let alone 80 or more percent uh, renewable penetration in the grid unless we have storage. And storage offers the ability to tap into different revenue streams. Value stack of, of storage is something that's a common term. Can you unpack a little bit for folks who maybe don't understand what value stack means? What are the various revenue streams as a developer that I might be able to consider? And maybe you can break it down by market if you could be so specific. Storage is not wind. It's not solar. It's not generating electrons, electrons at a prescribed time of day, right? It's responding to market signals to store electrons and then to discharge them. And so those signals really depend on on the market uh, in which that battery storage system is is operating, and no markets, no two markets are alike. So the the three primary revenue streams that we think about, and then our clients are thinking about, are around energy arbitrage, which is participating in day ahead or real time markets, you know, basically buy low, sell high, ancillary services, and then capacity. And so when we think about the the, the first prong there, energy arbitrage. The market that most obviously comes to mind is, is ERCOT, right? There's a lot of volatility in the market, uh, a lot of opportunity to actually deliver extraordinary returns. We're seeing payback periods for merchant battery storage plants in ERCOT in two and a half, three years. So what's the payback period for a storage project? And that's unlevered. <laughs> and that's unlevered. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, unlevered at, at under three years. Yeah. It's competing with LEDs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So for I mean, a storage when is, project. When has Renewable been able to do that? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, looking at, at a 20 year payback period over a storage project. What, and so, so that's, that's essentially, that's the energy arbitrage. What's driving that? Can right. you talk a little bit about the, the, the nature of the market? Cause I think folks that maybe are developing in New York or California are clearly looking at Texas, but the, right. why is that arbitrage there in ERCOT and not other places? ERCOT has extreme levels of volatility. Okay. Right. And it doesn't have a capacity market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that market is designed to really respond very quickly to, to market signals. So it's, it's the volatility that's driving that business model, which is not to say that's the only revenue stream in ERCOD. So yeah. for, uh, a, a, a large percentage of, of revenue that we see in the ERCOD market is around ancillary services. Yeah. What are the key elements of ancillary services? What is it that the storage provides in that regard to the grid? We see our, our clients focusing on kind of the, the reg up market and reg down and, and providing those grid services to, to stabilize, to allow people to, to actually put load on the grid when necessary. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is, as Julie's talking about these different revenue streams, even within ERCOT, they're not all equal. Some right. of them are location-based, like EnergyR, where it's very specific where you are at that node, whereas the ancillaries are statewide, right? So you, you kind of play both differently. And, and, you know, as you use one, it cannibalizes the other. Mm. And, and so people's individual kind of commercialization strategies and how they monetize those assets really comes into play. Yeah. You use the term cannibalize. And I was going to drill into that because... One of the things that I've come to understand is we're using storage to essentially try to eliminate or reduce volatility. Early in in a project life cycle, you're going to have the majority of your gains because it would stand the reason that as we integrate more storage, we're going to remove volatility in the system. How do you think about that from a capital allocation perspective? And how are you seeing project developers evolve with that as a reality? You know, once we get we have a tipping point where there's just not a, not as much volatility anymore, and it's a, and it's a re- declining stream. And 
And solar, we're used to increasing stream of revenue. I think we're a long way from that when it comes to energy ARB, um, especially when you start thinking about, you know, the transmission constraints and congestion and load pockets and, and issues that we have in ERCOT. And when you look at overall renewable deployment, where we are today versus where we need to go, if we continue with that deployment and it's not all PV plus storage, you're going to need a lot more standalone storage to offset and balance the grid. What do you think are the biggest concerns right now that are keeping projects from getting across the finish line? With regards to financing, I guess, specifically. Yeah, the, the, the cost and the availability of financing, uh-huh. I'd say, first, first and foremost. The other thing has been around supply chain. Hmm. So Aaron touched on it earlier. Supply chain woes are getting better from what we're, we're seeing. Is there any particular element in supply chain that is like a big, I mean, I know that transformers, for example, are yes. generally a constraint. Right. And that's not something that's, that's solely alloc- or a problem for storage. Is there anything in the storage industry specifically, the, the, the cells? I mean, I know you got, by the way, I, yep. I know you're not scientists, uh, you're, you're pricing advisory services. But I'm curious what you see that does limit the project's Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's physically getting the cells and the modules okay. over, over here to the United States. So yeah. this, this particular market, what I think in one of the last conferences that I was at, we were hearing about 18-month timelines to get My batteries goodness. here. Now, walking around the floor here today, I'm hearing six months. Everybody's got <laughs> So things are getting a little better. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, in a market where projects do get constrained and developers are out over their skis on, uh, on the money that they've put out and the projects haven't gotten there yet, what do we see? We see M&A, right? We start to see consolidation. Are we at a place right now where the storage market is starting to experience that, that kind of M&A activity? Uh, 100%. Mm. 100%. So I think over the last two years, we've seen about five to six gigawatts of, of pure standalone battery storage projects trade hands. Yeah. And there's been increasing activity uh, around platform transactions mm-hmm. uh, as well in the last 12, 12 to 18 months as well. So look, storage is where solar was about a decade ago. Yeah. And so it's it's still in its infancy. People are still trying to figure it out. Uh, each market is is very, very different. And so the application of storage you know, across across ERCOT is very different than it is from KISO and, and PJM. So you have very specialized developers that are out there. That's the other thing. We've seen the, the prevalence of, of just pure play battery storage developers. Of course, we've had IPPs, you know, solar and IPP experts that have added on storage capabilities to, to their own practices. But we've been seeing several you know, independent standalone battery storage developers rise and take advantage of, of their localized, you know, expertise, expertise within, within individual markets. And they've been able to access capital to help fund them other than just equity sources, which is really interesting in this market. Right. Right. Gentlemen, this for me has been a quasi masterclass on understanding how the capital markets are looking at and thinking about the storage industry. I talk to a lot of developers that are putting these projects together. It's great to speak to someone on the other side who are advising those developers, helping them navigate what is right now. A, a very hopeful, but can be a daunting and intimidating time as these projects try to find the path to completion and, and get online to, experience, to actually make money on that arbitrage. Julian Ballier and Aaron Klein are Managing Directors of Utilities Power and Renewable Energy at KeyBank Capital Markets. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow.
Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. If you are developing projects, if you are looking for capital, perhaps you have heard of a little company like called KeyBank. KeyBank Capital Markets is the advisory side of that practice. We're going to dig in to more about how their business works and why it matters to the industry at large. We're also going to really dig into their expertise around where the M&A market is and where it could be going. I'm joined by Ari Citrin, Managing Director, Utilities, Power and Renewables, Timothy Beach, Every Courier, and Ryan Pimot, all Managing Directors in the same, in the division. This promises to be an, ep- an, an interview, an episode that you won't want to miss. Without further ado, I'm going to turn my attention to the folks from KeyBank Capital Markets. And I'll start with better understanding how KCBM is active in the renewables market. Okay. Uh, thanks, Nico. I would start by saying that we've been active and remain active for mm-hmm. the last five or six years and become even more so in the last three or four. And that's basically an expansion of the team and just uh, a continuation of the firm's growth, just specifically in renewables uh, and mostly to, the, to date, solar and battery storage. And it's kind of snowballing as other things have happened in the marketplace, uh, but also to all the developers, private equity and infrastructure firms that have continued to invest. They have come up in value and size, and at some point they've needed to monetize, and we've been there to kind of provide the whole suite of uh, advisory service to help uh, help each one of these uh, clients transact and monetize uh, on their investments they've made over time. That includes developers and business owners and founders. And that kind of continues to, as the, as the space grows, and it does grow, uh, we're just seeing increased levels of activity, uh, both myself and my, and my colleagues and partners here. Yeah, I would just add, under our, under our group and oversight, we have about $8 billion in committed uh, project dollars across renewables to include storage, to include solar, to include wind, to include development. Uh, we also oversee uh, an $8 billion book to the utility space, many of whom are represented uh, here at RE+. You know, most of you guys have more than 15 years in the sector, not just at KCBM, but throughout your career. I'd love to hear what gets you excited about renewable energy, specifically with regards to M&A and how the market is developing. Yeah, I mean, I'll start. I mean, I think the thing that's most exciting is that we've been in this business um, at KeyBank for over 10 years. It feels like this is like a real industry with, you know, significant, significant hordes of people at at a conference, but we're only at 3% uh, solar penetration nationwide. So this industry is still very much at its infancy, despite the fact that it feels like there's tons of capital coming into the space and tons of projects being developed. It's still very early. 
I think it's still early stages. I tell some of the young guys on our team, if you're bored, you're just not paying attention between new legislation, between new technologies, the unknown unknowns that are forthcoming that, that are going to be dynamic and changing in this industry, um, as well as the capital markets environment. It's just impossible to, uh, uh, to not be excited about it. Yeah. I'd say we deal in capital markets. So obviously we're super involved in that. We see how the inflow of investment coming into the space. So I think obviously that's exciting from us on a day-to-day basis. But when I think about the broad renewable energy spectrum, what excites me is that I feel like it's, it's the first time in the history of the space where there's been kind of broad support for the industry, whether it's, you know, policymakers, regulators, investors, corporations, even utilities. And we're not every public utility commission, but a lot of public utility commissions are starting to kind of care about renewable energy. So look, I think I would point to like fundraising at a company level, at a private equity level, at an infrastructure level, and the dollars and the hundreds of billions that are pouring into the space that you're just seeing now get put to work in different ways is, I think, very exciting. The capital formation, just you mentioned the stack earlier. Yeah. I would say it's all the capital that's forming around looking for opportunities. And I think that's exciting for me. Yeah. I think there's a general question about scale. We still, we've still, we talk about billions of dollars and, uh, you know, we pat ourselves on the back as an industry, but let's be honest, we're still only 3% of the energy mix. I like to, a friend of mine says, what other industry brags about 3% market penetration, right? So a question that I have is, you know, how big do you think the market will be? What, what does a mature market actually look like? Oh, it's, it's a long way away. I'll start <laughs> and uh, my partners could jump in. Look, you can measure it in megawatts operating or gigawatts, uh, but that's probably not that accurate. You could measure it down in like, you know, assets mm-hmm. under construction. And then I don't even think that's that accurate. If you took a look at the entire value chain, everything from construction and components, I think that's how we're approaching it kind of as, as an investment bank. How can we help all aspects of the supply chain to bring basically more gigawatts online as fast as we can? And that's all part. It's a very time constraint issue. But I think if you can do that quickly and efficiently, and I don't think we're there yet, I think you do that over time, it starts to become like other industries that are much, you know, much more mature and efficient. We've talked about its infancy already, but that would be a few thoughts I would add. No, but I think that's the biggest point. It's really how do you define the space, right? You're seeing convergence of other industries, just take automotive and electric vehicles. Yeah. You know, what is that going to do ultimately for grid stabilization? What's that going to mean for capacity markets? What's that going to mean for, for other technologies and how, you know, we sit here and we say, okay, what is the renewable space? How big can it get? Again, I think I still think we're in early innings. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is when people, when industries talk about growth, you know, you look at a consumer or technology, something catches on, it can catch on very quick. And we're in the energy space and it's just, you know, the energy cycles move in 20, 30, 40, 50 year cycles. And right. So, you know, we're, we're called 10, 15 years in on this space, but there's still another 20, 30 years of cycle before we, we actually reach real maturity. Well, I guess I'm curious at an advisory level, you all get approached by, that's kind of like Jigger at the Department of Loan, uh, Loan Office, right? You get approached by everything. And a lot of folks here might hear the word renewables and have a very clear picture in their mind, right? right? So how do you think about the definition of renewables as it pertains to this idea of maturity of the market? Uh, we're focused on generation and storage at the moment, mm. right? And it's easily measurable. But I think what's evolving quickly is if you, if you look around this conference, you'll see a lot of folks involved in the supply chain, whether it's modules, inverters, what have you. And it's for different applications, whether it be utility scale, DGE, or down at a community, 
community and even a residential level. So all these companies here are participating and they all have miles and miles of, uh, of road to go in terms of growth opportunity. So I think it's comprehensive and like that for most of us, we're focused on generation today at maybe utility or a DG level, uh, even the community or, or resi level, but that's going to continue to rise. Like again, it's in its infancy and there's a much big lift to come. I don't disagree. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say we also look at things through a lens of being a bank and um, generally banks are, I would say, relatively slow to adopt to new asset classes. Um, so we're, we're the number one lender to renewable energy right now, more commitments than any other bank in the US in North America. Um, but as more technologies emerge, we would look to advise on those transactions as, you know, as they get to a certain size and as they become um, conducive for, for lending. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of value creation in renewables, even more so now with the IRA. Let's get on to brass tacks and talk a bit about M&A. How does the M&A market contribute to value creation with regards to developing a robust renewables market? I'll, I'll start, but there's a lot, there's a lot to talk a about lot. here. <laughs> like there are new investors entering the space every yeah. day with funds, and this is on a global basis, particularly the one investor in the U.S. for a number of reasons. We have the best bankruptcy laws. We have the best property laws. Uh, we have functioning capital markets. And, you know, if you look at us compared to Europe in terms of renewable power, we're very small and in our infancy as, you know, California is probably the closest to say Europe today, you know, followed by maybe Texas or New York. Like think about that in the context of why folks would want to invest in the U.S. International dollars, yeah. right? And so when we run an M&A process, you would hire us uh, or someone like us to, to capture that, that, you know, outlier bid that may come to the market with a different view on yeah. how things should be valued or priced. And those, that happens every day, uh, given the infancy of, of the industry. Yeah, I would just say it's really a function of the number of new participants. Just looking around the conference and the scale and the folks, you know, outside of the United States, it's really just globally focused. And then you get buyers who perhaps had historical focus on hydro, pump storage, gas markets, RNG, who are now looking to electric and new things. So look again, I think the possibilities are endless. I'm excited about technologies and how that's going to drive some, some M&A. And then the convergence and what you've seen uh, on the utility space, I think uh, Everett touched on it earlier, you, you could create an entire new wave of M&A if you get state jurisdic jurisdictions com more comfortable putting uh, assets into rate base. Yeah. I'm going to simplify it even even further, maybe even step back. But for me, with the value that you know a business like ours brings, whether it's running M&A processes or raising capital, it's, it's basically liquidity for developers or owners of assets to run and grow their business. Energy is a very capital-intensive industry. You can't grow without capital. You, in, in most cases, you can't grow with a, a lot, a, without a lot of capital. And I argue that the worst place to be as a developer or owner of, of assets is being undercapitalized, right? Uh, it limits your ability to grow. It limits your ability to be competitive with, with other, other businesses who have, who have big balance sheets. And so whether you're running an M&A process to uh, sell your company or sell assets, that's a form of liquidity for, for the business to continue to grow. And similarly, similarly, if you're a, an operator that needs capital just to build projects, right? That's that's the value that we're bringing. We're bringing liquidity and capital to a to an industry that has a, a voracious appetite for capital. Have you seen the investing landscape really change as a result of the IRA? I'll start and say absolutely. Right, the tax incentives are real. The returns have been boosted, even in a high interest rate environment. Right, where you know, 500 basis points has been added by the Federal Reserve over yeah. the last 12 months, like that hasn't affected necessarily 
uh, the return parameters or, or the appetite for investment. Like it's depending on where you want to invest, what jurisdiction, what state, where you want to invest in the value chain, the returns have been phenomenal. Yeah. They will continue to be. We, we kind of help our clients, you know, monetize their investments that they made three, four, six years ago. And it's still extremely attractive. And before generally most of our clients make an investment, if they're a follow-on client, yeah. they kind of know what to expect. The IRA has been incredible for, for the, the, that return mechanism. Yeah, I would totally echo that. I mean, I, you know, we've been in this business for 11 or 12 years. And I would say consistently for the first eight, nine years, we saw it like constantly new capital, new investors coming into the space. And it drove, you know, it drove down returns and it drove up valuations for developers. There was a period of time between when Build Back Better didn't pass and the passage of the IRA where it's very anecdotal, but it seemed to stagnate. Like there wasn't, there was still a lot of capital chasing relatively few projects and companies, but there wasn't a lot of new capital coming in during that period. And then with the passage of the IRA, it's like gangbusters again. We're seeing tons of new investment coming to the sector, people raising new funds, and there's just a scarcity of assets. Um, we're, we're running in several processes right now selling community solar assets. Um, and we regularly get 20 plus offers for those portfolios of assets because there's so many investors that want to own these generation assets. Yeah, I would just say, look, passage of the IRA, the timing couldn't have been better. Commensurate with a risk-free environment, as Everett said, pumped out at 550 basis points. So without those incentives and in, in some of the pressure on valuations, particularly on, on leverage, it really is a driving force. Investors like stability too. I mean, so that's you know, ultimately, like Tim mentioned earlier, there was lack of stability on whether there was going to be federal federal policy that was supportive of the industry for a long term, and that stagnated the space, stagnated investors' uh, participation. But now that that we have stable policy for the next ten years, we expect the that to provide like a bedrock of of for for investors and capital. You know, it occurs to me that there are lots who are tracking with you and there are others still that maybe don't understand how the market works at all. And they're becoming educated right now about M&A generally. So can we take a step back? Let's think 30,000 feet. Who's at the table? Like help me understand the real value chain with regards to M&A, how it works. Can you help outline the different roles, the kinds of companies? Obviously, I don't expect that you'll name brands that you work with, but just sort of who participates in this, seg in this segment to get deals across the finish line? We firmly believe that development is best done at a very local level. Um, you see this in other industries. Um, I, prior to doing renewable energy, I worked a lot in wireless towers, which is like vertical real estate. And there are three big public tower companies, um, but they don't do development very well. They generally rely on small companies to develop these assets, build the towers, and then they usually sell them um, to somebody that has may maybe a medium-sized company that might be backed by an infrastructure fund or private equity and then usually, usually once they achieve a certain scale and diversity of cash flows, they end up in a very, very low cost, an owner with a very low cost of capital that's usually a public entity. We started to see that window open up a little bit where a couple of companies started to go public in renewable energy. And unfortunately, the equity markets are just not great for doing that in any industry right now. I think when it does open back up, renewable energy will probably be some of the first companies to, to, to go public. But that kind of wave of asset creation is, is how M&A is driven. So you have small developer develops a handful of megawatts of projects that sells to called a mid-tier aggregator. Um, and then they develop or they, they amass a portfolio of assets that eventually will end up in um, into, into somebody that will own it forever. Um, we're starting to see that. I mean, the private markets, I will say, have completely stepped up. Um, we, we still see valuations are still very, very high um, for for assets going into 
pension funds, um, as, as we're seeing, pension funds make, make direct, direct investments into renewable energy. But once the public markets open back up, I think that it's, you're going to see a huge wave of consolidation happen again. But I think going back to your original point, the smaller developers on a localized level now have already access to capital, whether it's development capital, minority equity, structure preferred. And that really is a great conduit for, you know, th- that early stage of the value chain. Is there any place in the market that you see a lack of maturity right now? And you're kind of hoping you find you have to constantly educate or just generally maybe even avoid and you just kind of waiting for that area to kind of firm up. Uh, uh, Tim Tim mentioned it and like the public markets are still coming around. There's an ABS market. There's a little bit of a bond market. The equity markets aren't there yet, but they're going to come around. And when they do, you're going to see not just consolidation, you're going to see a a different level of capital coming to play. And all the equity analysts that cover the space are sometimes, you know, uh, ex-oil and gas guys, but they're not, they're just coming up to the speed as well. So when it's not just the initial public offering either. It's going to be the follow-on that's important for consolidation in the space. I would just say on the capital market side, that's kind of what I see. Yeah. Yeah. All that, I'll add that, you know, we see kind of a, a, a dislocation a little bit for companies that are earlier, earlier mid-stage on the development cycle. Mm. I think a lot of the capital that wants to own these projects is infrastructure focused capital, like infrastructure funds, pension funds. They really like, you know, infrastructure that is built and mm-hmm. is operating and throwing off cash flow. And they they tend to have difficulty, you know, understanding the risk return profile, something that's earlier stage in nature than that. And I still think there's kind of an imbalance for be, between, you know, these co- companies who are uh, developing and creating a lot of value through that development process and the, and the ultimate owners, you know, being able to they want to invest in those companies, but they just don't really understand the risk return profile. So, you know, they, they often will want to invest in those companies without actually recognizing the return that those companies are creating. And that's why you see a lot of partnerships. You see a lot of joint yeah. ventures. You see utilities par- partnering with LifeCoast, setting up infra funds, and it's just really a convergence of multiple constituents uh, leveraging their their expertise to get something done in the space. And it, it, look, it, to the contrary to, to, to the point I made, it has gotten better. Like it's gotten dramatically better over the last few years, but still not where not where we think it will get. We mentioned earlier that um, I can't remember ever Ryan that Europe is a lot further ahead in renewable energy. Um, I, I went to grad school in Europe, and that was m- much of the impetus of me wanting to get into renewable energy because it was so far ahead of where we were. In a lot of ways, Europe was a pioneer for the rest of the world. Um, Europe was very largely dominated by feed-in tariffs, which is just a you know, you build a solar project, you can sell the power at this rate for this many years, and it's a very very simple program. It was a subsidy, basically. It was they were they were paying more than the wholesale rate of electricity in these fit into our programs. But in the US, it, it creates opportunity, but also creates a huge headwind for the industry because it's like operating in 50 different countries. And when you actually boil it down to like utility zone, it's like many multiples of that because we have so many different programs. And that complexity, I think it creates opportunities for developers. It does, though, require a ton of education for yeah. investors because every sort of process we run, it's like an investor there are a handful of investors that need really basic education on some of these markets and some of these programs. We're going to work on that. We're going to work on the education side. You guys work on lubricating the, the finance side. But the markets do, uh, with all of the tailwinds and even with the technology challenges, we do expect that there will be gigawatts and gigawatts of projects coming online. I'd, I'd love to wrap with each of you kind of talking about where you see specific limiters. Could be uh, It could be around infrastructure or market structure or capital, but what is 
ultimately keeping us from achieving our goals and targets. And, you know, with the, with the gasoline on the bonfire, as Andy Redinger likes to say, what is, uh, what's potential, what has the potential to snuff it or at least uh, quail it a little? Uh, look, I think the industry's pointed in the right direction. It's, <clears throat> to me, it's about efficiency, yeah. like multiple, multiple transactions and standards for returns, thoughts around valuation that are consistent and there are comps for, which don't exist, you know, up and down the value chain today. In some cases they do. As this becomes known, amongst the investing public uh, and or private investors at, at a certain level, you will see it attract even more capital and you'll see processes become more efficient. And once you monetize a bunch of these investments and the returns are pretty much there for all institutional investors to record and rely on, then you'll see even more progression. I too did a part of my undergraduate work and my graduate work in Denmark, and it's hard to compare Denmark to the United States. It's a much bigger footprint, obviously. And we have to learn that it's not necessarily one size fits all. So I think a a practical approach that's going to be complemented in storage where I live now in Ohio, uh, let it be known the sun doesn't shine as much as it does <laughs> in Palm Desert. And so, you know, we're, we're going to have a different approach. And uh, I think that's really what's going to get us over the hump. But again, like our, our earlier colleagues talking about storage, I think that's a major catalyst. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there look, there's a, there's a lot of things that are maturing in our industry that are, we don't have enough of. I mean, like, we ever hit on supply chain, and I think the the, the last uh, podcast was we spent a little bit on supply chain too. But you know, we don't have enough components, whether they're manufactured here or other places. We don't have enough components. We don't have enough people who understand this in the space who have kind of worked in the space long enough. Uh, we need to increase the labor force and the experienced labor force. Whether you know, all of our clients are short staffed across the board. Tax equity is dislocated right now, um, just because of the IRA, which is a phenomenal thing, and that will get figured out in the next you know, 12 to 24 months, but for the near term, you know, uh, a lot of investors, tax equity investors mm-hmm. and developers owner operators are trying to figure out how that, how the IRA is going to change that tax market. So there's a lot of things that we need to work through over the next kind of 24 to 30, 36 months, but the, the tailwinds are all trending in the right direction. Tim, last word. I would say um, another a big impediment right now is interconnection. It's obviously very, very different by market, um, and it and it has a lot of players involved. Um, sometimes util- often utilities are resistant to renewable energy. Oftentimes, too, they just don't know. We've never had a dynamic where you can actually build small power plants all over the country, um, and um, and they're they're not prepared to deal with that. So I think we need um, better regulation um, to kind of free up the molasses around interconnection to get get these projects connected to the grid and generating. Well, again, I say I've had a, a small masterclass today on M&A in the renewables markets, thanks to the KeyBank Capital Markets team, Tim Beach, Ari Citrin, Ryan Pimot, and Everett Courier. Thank you so much for joining us here for today's conversation. All right. Thank you, Nico. Thanks, Nico. Thank you. Hey, I'm so grateful that you made it all the way to the end of today's conversation. And as I mentioned a couple of times, you can watch this and all our other live sessions from the RE Plus Power Up Live podcast stage because they were live streamed to suncast.live. That's right, suncast.live, where we've codified each and every session, including the two that you just heard. Of course, they were streamed directly to the Suncast Media YouTube channel. I hope that you're subscribed there because we have a ton of great content already published that you can dig into, like the playlist that we put together of each one of these sessions individually carved out something we didn't do in 2022 and got feedback from you all that you'd like to see more of. Of course, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you'll be able to keep in touch with all the wonderful live broadcasts that we do from many different locations, but also how 
we are now publishing all of our podcast episodes as video episodes. That's right, video episodes. So if you'd la- rather see what we're talking about, like this past Tuesday where Nate Giovanelli and I did a bunch of screen sharing and ha- frankly just had a lot of fun together doing our RE Plus recap episode, well, you should mosey on over to YouTube, find Suncast Media and subscribe. Of course, we've linked to that along with all the other resources you need from this episode in the show notes page, right in the description of the podcast player that you are listening on right now. Unless you're listening on the web, in which case I'm grateful that you're at mysuncast.com because you found the home for more than 650 episodes just like this where we dig in with the leaders of the clean energy transition. Thank you once again to our sponsors who help make this show possible each and every week so that you only have to pay attention. Thank you so much to those. You can find more information about those companies that have supported us at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And of course, since this is a replay from RE Plus, thank you to KeyBank Capital Markets, our presenting sponsor of the Power Up Live stage. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.